this. But lastly, grab your Bible and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have one or own one, there's one in the pew back in front of you. And turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and give your attention to the reading of God's word today. As Jason said, the reading this morning is in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 on page 619 of your pew Bible. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of wisdom is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourselves have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The word of the Lord. Well, we're glad that you're here, and hopefully you have your Bible in your hand as we are continuing in the journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the journey that Solomon's been taking us on. And so um, as we continue out through the rest of the book, what Solomon's going to do is, through the rest of these chapters, he's going to just sort of shoot off 
these wise sort of proverbs and parables, if you will. Almost like a Facebook status or a Twitter feed. It's almost like, man, some of these things don't make sense and they're sort of just jumbled together. But I promise you that there is a theme. And I promise you that Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and Palm Sunday do go together. And uh, maybe as a way of introduction, this will be helpful. This past week, um, we got to go see some of my family down in Kennet. That's where my grandmother and grandfather are. Kenneth's still home when we go down and for Christmas or Thanksgiving or anything like that. And we always sort of have a routine. Right before sort of we pass through Hawkham or Campbell, we'll call and we'll say, what's your order? And we'll get everybody's food order and we'll swing through Bill's Barbecue there. It's a great restaurant that we love to eat at. And so they're dear friends uh, of our family. And then we'll swing through there. And sometimes we'll go through Cosby's Bakery, um, get some of those no-bake cookies that I believe that they put drugs in because you can't just eat one. You eat like the whole box of them or something like that. And so we get to the house, and the kids know the toy room at Nanny and Lonnie's. And so we go there, and we're eating there at the table. And inevitably, um, we just start to talk about life. We just catch up. And Nanny will tell me how many hummingbirds they had at their house this week and how much feed they had to put in the feeder. And then always um, they start talking and telling stories about Kenneth that, that I didn't get to know or, or about life in general. And then I look over and Romans pulled the chair up by the table and, and, and he's listening to Nanny and Lonnie. And, and even this past week, um, my nanny is like 85, 86 years old. And so we were outside playing baseball and Roman hit the ball and I got it and I threw it to Nanny. Nanny was at home plate and Roman was running at home plate and Nanny just straight shoulder checked Roman. <laughs> I mean, like, and Roman was like, yo, Nanny, like... I mean, it was awesome. It was incredible. And so they've still got the spunk, and they have totally still got life. And Nanny said something. She was there. She said, Jason, you know, the, you know my girlfriends that I used to run around with? And uh, every Thursday, I think it was, Nanny goes and gets her hair done at the beauty salon. And she says, she says you know, um, only two of them are still living now. And what Nanny and Lonnie do is, is they sit down over a meal, and they tell us about life. And in a way, it's almost like a fountain of wisdom, what you get to hear from them. That's what um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is like. It's sort of like sitting down with your uh, wise granddaddy or nanny over a cup of coffee and saying, hey, over my long 80 plus years of life, this is what I have found to be important and this is what I have found to not be so important. If you look at verse 15, Solomon says, in my vain life. I've seen everything. Wow. In my vain life, in all the money, in all the prominence, and all of the accomplishments, and everything that I've ever seen, I've seen a lot in my life. And he's going to tell us what's good. Really, the key word in the passage is better. Have you seen it? In, in verse 1, a good name is better. Verse 2, it is better. Verse 3, sorrow is better. Verse 5, it is better. Verse 8, better is... Do you see? When the Bible repeats a word like that, it's trying to tell you something. And so if I'm going to teach on Ecclesiastes 7, my points should probably come from the passage, Right? It should be the author's intent. And a great way to think about Ecclesiastes 7 is, is to go back to grade school 
when they taught you in math about the greater than and the less than symbol? Do you remember that? I'll, I, I never understood it until they like made the alligator and then you like ate the one and then it pointed and all that, right? And so today, if you will, Solomon is sort of showing us something that's greater and less than. And, and really the thrust of the passage is this. Godly wisdom is greater than worldly foolishness. Sure, right? I mean, I mean, I think that's very clearly there. And now I could do one of two things. I could, I could roll on in the sermon and continue to preach and teach. But in a way, I think what I would be doing is sort of preaching to the choir. Meaning, I don't think you really disagree with that thesis in and of itself. Until we actually look at wisdom and understand it in its context. Remember, we, we had another math equation that we've learned about wisdom and foolishness. Remember that? Um, foolishness, we said, is information minus application. That's foolishness. That's what ancient wisdom would tell you. That knowing something is not, does not mean you're wise. It's not just knowledge, Right? But rather, we said that wisdom is information plus application. That's what equals wisdom. And Jesus even reinforces this. And when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives the great dissertation of the kingdom of God. And then in the end, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, He who hears these words of mine, so that's information, but does not do them, minus application, is the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. But then he says, he who hears these words of mine, information, and does them, application, is like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. You see, I think in 2019, we live in the great, I mean, it's just an incredible age to live in. Right now, in your pocket or in your purse, on your phone, you have more access to more information than any human beings that have ever lived in the history of mankind. At any moment, I can state a fact in a sermon and you can check the preacher and Google it in two seconds, right? But yet... The human condition still remains the same. So clearly it's not information is our problem, but rather applying the information that we know. That is wisdom. But it's actually a step further than that. You see, wisdom is not just principles, if you will. Jordan Peterson writing his 12 Rules for Life, a New York Times bestseller, practical advice of how to order chaos into order. It's not just principles, but we are Christians. We believe wisdom is a person, and that person being Jesus Christ. You see, wisdom is not an abstract principle, but it is a person. And the Apostle Paul reinforces this in 1 Corinthians And when he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Now again, I don't think that you would disagree with that. That's sort of like the Sunday school answer. Um, What is wisdom? Uh, Jesus. That's right, little Billy. All right. You know, it's just Jesus, right? That's great. That's great. But when you look at Scripture... It constantly corrects our perception and our view of Jesus. Just think about the disciples, right? Like, when did they really get it, 
right? I mean, Peter in one chapter is saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. I will go and I will die for you, right? And then literally like 20 verses later, Jesus calls Peter Satan, right? He's like, get behind me, Satan. You don't even get it. I mean, like I love that guy, right? And so we need the Scriptures to correct our view and no better way than Palm Sunday. Because you see in Palm Sunday, we read the verses Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And in all of the gospel accounts that record the triumphal entry, as it's called, they say that they, they waved palm branches and laid them on the ground as he comes into town. Now, you need to know a little bit of history about this. So the Jews are under Roman rule and reign, okay? So, so Caesar is ruling the known world and suppressed the Jews, made them pay more taxes and all of this. About 100 and 150 years before Jesus, there was a guy that said, you know what, enough is enough. We are going to usher in the kingdom of God. And he led a Jewish revolt, And it was violent, and in a way, the Jews sort of thought they won. And because they thought they won, they got palm branches and waved them as a symbol of victory. So now, when Jesus comes into town and people are waving palm branches, the Jewish people say, yes, God's going to save us. And we know how God's going to save us. He's going to save us just like he did in the past. That's one aspect. But another aspect is understanding how Caesar used to enter into town. So so in order to sort of keep your rule and reign, you had to flex on people every once in a while, right? Let them know what time it is, if you will. So Caesar would come into town and he would roll into the city gates upon a white horse as a symbol of power. And that he would have guards march in front of him, and with their steel swords and their shields, they would bang it together to make a marching sound. I mean, this was a symbol of might and of power. So now, you have two views of wisdom and power, if you will. One is, yes, God, we know how you're going to save us because you did it like that in the past. And another one is, well, clearly that's power and might because look at all of the authority. But remember, Jesus is wisdom. And here comes wisdom on a donkey. Just straight out of Shrek, right? And what is Jesus going to do? He's going to die. I mean, the disciples never understood. Okay, so you say that you're the Messiah and that the kingdom of God is coming into the world, but you keep mentioning this laying down your life thing. I mean, they never understood it. Peter even said, I'm not going to let you die. And that's when Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, because I have to die. Now, are you bridging the application from the context to your life? How often do we enter into our conversations riding upon a white horse, dominating the conversation, wanting, or like the Jewish people, to win? We will win, and we will take this into our own hands because we are wise. Fool me once, shame on me, but fool me twice, 
right? The whole saying. But now the scriptures say, no, 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 no. Wisdom, it doesn't work like you think it works. And oftentimes, wisdom doesn't look like what we think it looks like. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 is going to show us how how godly wisdom is just countercultural, if you will. Now I think we're boots on the ground. Now we see what this looks like. And the first thing that Solomon says that wisdom does is that wisdom faces reality. Look at what he says in the first verses. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Here it is. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. I mean, look at that. It's better for the death date than the birth date. Like, I think it would be super funny, like I was thinking this week, to make like your own little fortune cookies, but like in the Solomon style of fortune cookies. So after your great meal, you crack open the fortune cookie and it says, you're going to (laughs) die. Have a great day, right? I mean, like, it's like, wait, whoa. Like, I mean, Solomon would not sell a lot of Christian t-shirts today, right? Or bumper stickers, you know? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. We love that. It's better for you to die than for you to live. Blah, right? Can I have that in the large, please, right? And, and, and he gives us a place to show us how to face reality. He says there's two places that you can go. The first is to the house of feasting. That's a party. That's what he's saying. It's a party scene. You can either go to the house of feasting where there's laughter and this, that, and the other. Or you can go to the house of mourning. That's a funeral home, Right? So, as many of you know, I worked part-time at a funeral home as an in-house chaplain. And also, being a pastor, I'm sort of preaching weddings and preaching funerals are kind of what I do. You know what I mean? And so, but I always say this. I would much rather preach at a funeral than preach at a wedding. Now, here's why. At a wedding, you're just a prop. Nobody cares what you're saying. No one. The groom is like, all right, man, about two more hours, and it is honeymoon time, right? The bride's like, I hope my dress looks good. I hope that one girl's here because I let her know that my wedding's better than hers, and I got all this Pinterest stuff, and hope everybody, right, okay? Nobody's listening. You got the family sitting on opposite sides, and somebody's mad because they didn't get to do this. Then the pictures, right? They make you wait seven hours before you can, so all this stuff, right? Nobody hears you at a wedding. At a funeral I have a dead body behind me. And I'm like, uh, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that, he has to face judgment. We all end up here. You see, what Solomon's saying is be careful. Because what you can do in your life is you can constantly avoid putting yourself in the path of God. Here's what I mean by this. You can sort of build your life to be this fantasy, if you will. So you're always on the up and up. You're always going to these places. You're always distracting yourself. You're always doing this. And you are never confronted with reality. And Solomon says, it would do you well to go to a funeral rather than a wedding. Because there, something is happening with sorrow, and you're confronted with reality. And what Solomon's constantly teaching us is this. 
Am I living my life with the end in mind? You see, if you've ever ran across people who are cancer survivors or who have been a part of a tragedy and have escaped something like that, they have a new lease on life. All of a sudden, the things that they thought were so important are no longer important. Why? Because they understand that the end is close. And now our priority list changes. And so for us, are we living our life constantly distracted, listening to the noise, going here, hurry, hurry, busy schedule, let's hurry, hurry, go here, hurry, hurry, do this, hurry, hurry, do that. And we never get to sit and actually evaluate what's most important. Solomon says wisdom, it actually confronts and faces reality. The second thing is this, that wisdom admits failure, right? That's real positive, and all the people who love to win did not say amen. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. It's interesting. Solomon's saying, um, it's actually better for you to hear a correction from someone who's wise and someone who loves you than for someone to pat you on the back and give you another cupcake, right? I think this is massively important for us in 2019 because that's, that's the opposite of worldly wisdom, right? Like worldly wisdom says that all confrontation is bad, nothing negative, no correction because you hate me and all of this. And if you challenge me, then you hate me because there's no way that you can love me and correct me at the same time because I need a star next to my name and my granny boo-boo always gave me an extra cupcake and this, that, and the other, right? And what Solomon's saying is, no, 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 no. You need to have people in your life who can actually sit you down, risk the relationship, and lovingly let you know where you failed. You know what nobody ever told me? Courtney and I just celebrated 10 years um, of marriage this past week. You know what nobody ever told me? How much I would say I'm sorry Nobody ever told me that about growing up. Nobody, nobody was like, hey, um, you're going to blow it like every day, and um, you're going to have to say you're sorry a lot, and you're going to even have to say you're sorry to a four-year-old kid. That's some life advice, right? But why is failure so important? And parents, please listen to me. Please listen to me. Do not allow your children to grow up in this little safe bubble where they never encounter failure. Because failure teaches us where our idols really are. You see, success, and when things are going well, does not reveal someone's true character. You show me someone going through suffering or someone who has failed, and I will show you the real person. Because those things bring everything to the surface. Now we can no longer control. Now I can't control this image that I try to portray and put out. And now I have failed. But you have two options when it comes to failure. You can either allow failure to refine you or to define you. Those are the only options that you have. 
And surprisingly, people that failure defines them, they do not want help. Oh, no, no, no. Now, listen, this is going to sound like an oxymoron because they are asking for help and your time and advice and let's meet and let's talk and I've got to, and they want that all the time, all the time. But they will not apply any of that. Why? Because now failure has become their identity. And if they let that failure go of this happened to me or I made this mistake and this is all I've ever known and if they let that go, they no longer know who they are. So now they were always the victim. So failure can define you or it can refine you. Because here's the beautiful thing about Christianity. It's this concept called grace. And you see, grace is not something that you earn. Grace, listen to me, grace only moves into brokenness. Grace is not for people who have it all together. Grace is not for strong people who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and I will not show my weakness and I will not enter into that conflict, but I am going to go around it. See, listen, many of us want to go around the conflict. And what God is saying is, listen, you can't go around the conflict. You have to go through that in order to experience grace. That grace moves into the broken areas. And the key factor, listen, this is huge, and we're going to get really deep right now. The only way that failure cannot define you but refine you is this. Do you know how God is going to answer your prayers Many of us are, God, let, allow me to move past this hurt in my life. God, allow me to show me, move. It's all this God language, right? And do you know how God answers a ton of your prayers? He uses people. It's crazy, right? So question, how can you experience the love mercy and grace of God and also live in isolation and not allow anybody in. You cannot. And many of you are almost angry with yourself. You want to get involved. You want to live in community. But you also know that when you do that, you've got to expose your weakness and you know that you want grace, but you also have the image. And so the question is this, do you have people in your life that will tell you what you need to hear or what you want to hear? That's it. Solomon says, better is the rebuke, right? And also, by the way, your image of Jesus, have you ever read through the Gospels and counted how many times it says, and Jesus rebuked the disciples? You ever seen that? So question, does your Jesus rebuke you? Because if, because if not, if it's all sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns, farting fairy dust with Jesus and all this stuff, I'm not so sure that's the Jesus of the Scriptures. But rather, Jesus, listen, this is so beautiful. Jesus comes to you in the midst of your failure. I mean, exposed, broken, shame-ridden, guilt-ridden, and he looks you square in the eye and says, I know, I know. And I love you. So let's move from the brokenness to the beauty. Because grace and wisdom, it admits its failure. 
So the greatest way to ruin your marriage and to ruin relationships and to sabotage your entire life is to never admit that you're wrong, is to win, win. Because when you do that, you will never experience the grace of God. Wisdom faces reality. Wisdom admits failure. And then this one, wisdom perseveres in patience, right? Nobody's amen in the points today because it talks about like facing reality, admitting failure. And now today it's like patience. Oh, great. Just when I was going to say money next, right? I don't know. I could. Okay. Look at what, look at verse eight. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. It's interesting. The word that he uses, proud in spirit, it it means elevated or high. High in spirit. Right? So it's literally looking down on people. But in order to, to be patient, that means to do a little word study. If proud equates with anger, right? Because oftentimes angry people are prideful people. Why? Because when you're prideful, you're the standard. So why do do they need a hug? And why do I need to call them every five seconds and tell them that I love them and that everything's okay? I don't need that in my life. I never got that in my life. What I did in my life is I worked hard. And what they need to do is they need to work hard. And I don't understand why they need that. And it'd probably be better if we weren't in a relationship together because I don't need an affirmation on social media every six seconds in my life, right? Because now you're the standard. And so when you are the standard, you place that upon everyone else. And you are high in spirit. And it says that's equal to anger. But, but humility means, means that you have to get low then, right? Palm Sunday. God in the flesh. I mean, this is it, man. This is it. He is inaugurating the kingdom of God. And he's on a donkey. On a, don- on a work animal. I mean, I mean, think about it. Have you seen all through the scriptures how Jesus describes the kingdom of God? It's interesting, isn't it? The disciples are like, yo, Jesus, tell us about heaven. What's it like? The power, the kingdom of God. What's that like? I would have been like... Um, The kingdom of God is like the lightsaber and it's like the final battle scene or it's like the Lion King with the ha, right? It's like, it's just these epic, it's all. He never says that. What does he say? The kingdom of God's like a farmer. Has some seed. He just throws it out. The rain comes and the sun shines. The plant sprouts. Birds sometimes come, sometimes the sun chokes it out. That's what the kingdom of God's like. You're like, what? That's what you've got for me? Because listen, here's what we want to do. If God is making us into the image of Jesus Christ, that's what it means to be a Christian. We sing the song day by day. Day by day, he's continually making you into the image of Jesus. And whatever is not like Jesus, he is chiseling away with his hammer. This is the theological concept called sanctification, okay? Right, there's your free seminary right there, all right? That means becoming like Jesus. But here's what we want to do. We want to try to Amazon Prime that process, bro, right? 
I mean, can I be like the image of Jesus two days, like on the doorstep type of a thing? And I don't want to have to go through the stuff or the tragedy or the heartache or this, that, or the other. But rather, what we think is, I'm going to hit the eject button on this life, and then I'm going to go and I'm going to be with Jesus. That is, not, that is a poor, poor example of the Christian life. But here's what God's saying. The process... It's the point. Many of us want to try to get around the process. We're like, this doesn't make any sense. I think a great illustration of this is, have you, have you ever put together children's toys? Looked at the instructions? You're like, do I have to have a graduate degree to put this thing together? Like, what in the world, right? And then magically, they're like, you take A, and then B, and then voila, there it is. And you're like, I don't have A. It's not in here, Right? And then your kids are over in the corner, like, shaming you while you're trying to put it together. Hurry up, Dad. Why is it not together yet? Right? Billy's dad puts it together in two seconds. You're like, I'm not Billy's dad. Okay? Right? And we want to try to skip all the... Listen, what if... Just listen. I'm just going to lay this before you. What if the conflict in the community group... What if not being able to balance serving in church... What if not getting your way is the process? And rather than trying to remember, ride in on our white horse, or yes, Jesus, we know how you will save us. You will save us like we're always used to. What if wisdom and God is trying to teach you is in the failure and in the process and in the confession? And in the weakness. You see, godly wisdom, it's greater than worldly foolishness. And wisdom perseveres in patience. And then the last thing is this. Wisdom isn't nostalgic. This is fantastic. If you haven't been offended yet, here you go. Verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? Here it is. You ready? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This is fantastic. Do you know where we get the word nostalgia from? It's a compound word that comes from two Greek words. The first one meaning return home. And the second one meaning pain. It's where we get the phrase homesick from. Right? So this is Dorothy. Right? Oh, Dorothy just wants to leave Kansas. Oh, Toto, if we could just leave here. Oh, Toto, if we could just... And then she goes to Oz. And what does she do the whole movie, man? She wants to go back to Kansas, right? Dorothy wears me slick, man. I mean, I'm just like, oh, my goodness. Give me the tin man, the scarecrow, right? Let the house drop on Dorothy, not the... I'm just kidding, okay? I'm working through a little bit of anger with that, right? But... How often do you hear, oh man, the good old days. Oh, the good old days. Right? This is a word for us as a church. Man, man, I used to know everybody. Now we're at two services. Now you got to get involved and do. And now you got to, now we got to go back. And I always wish the thing. And when we did the thing and did the stuff, oh man, that was, woo, that was good. Right? If you talk to actually a really wise older person, they'll tell you this. The only thing about the good old days is that they're gone. There wasn't nothing good about them. 
standing in line for soup kitchens during the Depression. Ain't nothing good about that. Why? Why in moments do we want to go back to find comfort? Solomon's doing some really good heart work with us, and it's this. If you ever find yourself wanting to go back to find comfort, it's because you're afraid of the future, and you don't know what it holds, because you can't control the future. So what can you control? The past. And you can go back and try to relive that. We see this in the scriptures. You remember when Charlton Heston went up the mountain to talk to God and to get the Ten Commandments, right? What was the rest of Israel doing down at the base of the mountain? They partied and they made an idol, a golden calf. I've always wondered, golden calf? You couldn't have made a bear, a lion, a snake, something. You made a cow, a fat cow. Until you study history, and one of the many gods of Egypt was a cow. Now listen, when they were at a point when God was going to do something new and profound in their life, and it wasn't tangible, they couldn't see God, they couldn't control God. God, why are you not like the other gods? What they did in the moment of the unknown is they went back to the past, and they went back to what they were used to. So what's God trying to do in your marriage? What's God trying to do in your relationships? What's God doing in your walk with Jesus? Because you see, Jesus, he only wants us to glance at the past. Never live or stare at it. Because Jesus is about doing new things in your life. New things. And new things require new ways and you're not going to be able to function this year in your marriage like you were last year. And you're not going to be able to parent your kids this year like you did last year. And you're not going to be able to do with Jesus this year what you did last year. Because there's new things that he wants to do. But the last point that we have to reiterate is this. Wisdom is found in Jesus. Solomon doesn't know about, I mean, sure, he has a vague understanding of the Messiah, but in no way, shape, or form is Solomon understanding what, I mean, the incarnation, what, what, what the life of Jesus is going to look like. But look at what he says in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then look at verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Verse 24. That which has been is far off and very deep, and who can find it? Do you know what Solomon's saying? The wiser I got, the less I knew. Right? Like the more I've walked with God, the less I know. This doesn't make any sense because why? Because listen to me. Wisdom's not the ultimate answer. Wisdom's not the ultimate answer. What's the word in our text today? Better, right? Better. Did you know that Jesus references Solomon? He uses our phrase in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
Something greater than Solomon is here. Because listen, here's the point. What you need in your life right now, you don't need better advice. You don't need more advice. What you need is a better view of Jesus. That's what you need. You don't need another podcast. You don't need another book. You don't need this, that, and the other. What you need is a better view of Christ. And that Jesus, that Jesus, he works in ways that we are so often not used to. Ways that we think are counterintuitive. So today for you, what if wisdom is sending your dad a text message? Or calling your family member. Or crossing the aisle before communion today. And saying, I'm sorry. You can ride your white horse. It doesn't lead to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has an entryway. And only people who ride donkeys enter in on that. And you must get low. As the band comes and leads us in a time of response, we get to come to the table. Do you know what makes us Christian in this worship service? Not the singing. Nope. Not the praying. Nope. You can go to a mosque or a synagogue and get all that. Not the preaching. Nope. What makes us distinct is you can go to many places of worship and you can go to all types of different places, but the moment that we say that that table is the body and blood of Christ, that there are the elements that Christ has given us, that the elements of victory are great humility. The table is what makes us distinct. And when you come to the table, you see simple elements of bread and of juice. To which the world would say, that is foolish. To which God says, I will use the foolish to shame the wise. Because godly wisdom is not what you and I think it is. So as we come to the table today, the beck and call from the text and Palm Sunday is this. You lay down your pride. That's foolish. Pride is foolish. Pride does not admit failure. Pride does not confront reality. Pride does not persevere in patience. Pride is nostalgic and always goes back. But godly wisdom, it doesn't look right in the moment. But through great victory is great humility. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we ask that you would humble us. And God, the only way that we can be humbled is to love something more than we love ourselves. Today, as Jesus, you are crowned King of the Jews. Hosanna. We know not what we say. We don't know the gravity of the cross. We don't know the gravity of the entrance into the kingdom of God is to admit failure. For us, God, today, when we say that we have been saved or that we are sons and daughters of you, what we are also saying is that we were lost and that we were orphans and that nothing that we did on our part earned your favor, but rather Jesus Christ in his grace and in his mercy very wisdom of God 
God, I pray for those of us today who will pick up the phone, who will write a text message, who will send an email, who will cross the aisle. They will confront reality. They will admit failure. But more than that, they will experience grace. May that flood this place today. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.